You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. The gowns and accessories that come from the millinery shop create their own kind of living history when someone puts them on. Jenea Whitaker has experienced this herself. She's the milliner and mantua maker at Colonial Williamsburg. Janae, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Milliner and mantua maker, what does that title even encompass? Well, in the 18th century, your milliner is the person who makes all the ornaments or accessories to your wardrobe. Um, and it might be the innermost layers of shirts and shifts for the family, your outermost cloaks and robes and ruffles and aprons and trims. And that's your milliner. That's the milliner. Um, by definition, uh, we're milliners because we deal in a thousand things. Oh, mele. Exactly. Okay. So um, it's a very diversified trade. Uh, one of the few that nearly always is owned by women. And of course, closer related to our sister trade of mantua making, which is dressmaking. Um, so an apprentice can um, tra or, uh, train for both and in almost a double apprenticeship. So mantua means dress or gown. That's a funny word. Where did it that is. come from? Um, late in the 1600s, there was a style of gown called a mantua. And women who had been working with the tailoring trade start making these, and they are allowed to break away from the tailoring trade. And within a generation or two, just about everything that women wear is based now on the mantua. So we have a trade, in, independent of the tailors. Who are the customers going to be? I, I imagine this is a sort of a, a finer ladies would be coming to the, to the milliner mantua maker. Well, everyone knows how to sew. But you're applying your sewing to household linens, mending. You might actually be making your shirts and shifts at home, which means that you might compete with the milliner for that product. But those are the garments that get the very best sewing, so it's questionable whether people have the time to do all of them. This is a largely women-owned business. These women also are international business people. They do a lot of trade. Where are their wares coming from and their supplies? The milliners in Virginia are trading with merchants in London. And it's the London merchants that are then gathering the goods together that are coming in from all over the world. Um, fabric and the goods that we're using in the, the fashion trades represent international tr commerce and trade. What do Williamsburgers like? Ah, oh, um, they really like new shoes and stockings and gloves. Um, they also are buying an incredible amount of linens and cottons. Um, of course, we have summer wardrobes, so that would be different from London fashion. Um, so we're wearing lighter colors, lighter weight fabrics. And in 1774, summer lasted until middle to late November. So that's a good portion of the year that um, we have our own specialized wardrobe. It stands to reason that linen and cotton would be the most in-demand fabrics because those are what your undergarments are going to be made of, correct? Definitely linen. Um, as the century progresses, more and more of the innermost wear are being made out of cotton. But um, cotton is coming in from you know, our sister colonies in India. There's some coming in from China. There is cotton from Persia and Turkey and Egypt, a little bit from the West Indies and other places. Talk to me about how a gown is worn because the gown itself will never actually touch your skin, is that right? Yes. You have the layer of linen in the shift, 
then perhaps an under petticoat, which is about knee to calf length, then the stays on top, then you have maybe your gown petticoat and your gown. Um, so it, it's definitely layers and they all get washed as needed. But um, because you have those layers on, you don't have to wash the outer as much. But we've got great laundry recipes, and that's part of the milliner's trade. How were they doing laundry in those days? Well, um, of course, you know, wet washing with water and soap, and dry washing is any material not using water. So uh, turpentine is being used, various recipes. Um, gin comes to mind. Then they have the Fuller's Earth and the French chalks and the breadcrumbs and solutions that are made up that either are bleach or will lift stains and grease out of fabric. And uh, many of these recipes are found in the family cookbooks or household books. So when our customers come to Williamsburg without those books, they might, you know, they, they might have come to us as an option. Breadcrumbs. When I get breadcrumbs on my clothes, I consider that I'm getting dirty. These were used as a method mm -hmm. of, of getting clean? Mm -hmm. You can brush them into the fabric. It'll help uh, lift the grease and then, um, then they're brushed out. Uh, that also is used to burnish uh, silver and gold threads. How many gowns would uh, a lady have had in her wardrobe? That's a question that we really honestly wish we knew the answer to. Clothing just doesn't show up on inventory. Um, and people don't write down what's in the uh, cupboards and the drawers. Um, even today, 21st century, we don't keep those kind of records. But fabric is the biggest import. The people making clothes are, are here in Virginia in big numbers. Um, there's many styles of clothing that can be made. And there's commentary and essays that too much money is being spent on clothing. Uh, so a lot of factors sort of point to good wardrobes. I think about when you, when you talk about styles, when we see a movie that's done in the period, you, you think there's, it's interpreted today as pretty much one style, a colonial style. Mm -hmm. But I understand that there's actually, you know, styles are yearly, they're decadal, it, it changes quickly. Yes. Just like today, you're wearing different color combinations or, you know, a different style of sweater from last year, a different jacket. The 18th century um, understood those changes. Um, the style of apron might change in shape from year to year. The colors that we wear might change four or five times in a year um, in the 18th century. Um, it's subtle, but the more you study it, the more you pick up on the sleeve is a little tighter this year from last year, or um, the, the ruffles are in gauze, or they're triple layers of lace instead of just single layers. What is influencing style in the colonies in the 18th century? Who's setting the trend? We're looking to England. They say, however, that if you see something in Tuileries Garden one week, it'll be on Pall Mall the next. So between Paris and London, very fast um, communication of fashion. Between England and the colonies, it's one ship's crossing. And um, you know that good passage, that might be six to eight weeks. And then we know what the styles are. Um, in England, though, it's not just French fashion. There's all sorts of influences, including maybe there's a new play on the London stage and the actress has got a new style of, of gown or, or a new hat that she's wearing and next week everybody wants to be wearing it. 
fashion seems like we regard it as kind of a frivolity. But if you look at it more closely, it seems like it, it can kind of tell you a broader story about international trade, trade embargoes, what materials are available, what social station you're in. What can we learn about the society uh, of the past when we look at its fashions and its clothing? Well, people need to be clothed. People need to be dressed. And it's a very personal way of, of maybe identifying with England that I'm wearing English fashion. Or maybe it's a way of identifying with a, a new thought. During the Stamp Act crisis in the 1760s, one comment that floated around was that you were the most patriotic if you were the most threadbare. Of course, as soon as that was over, they went right back to importing. And they, they didn't decrease the importation of fabrics and feathers and fans and hats until, you know, until the revolution started. As soon as the war's over, they go right back to importing. You have the advantage in your trade of, of being a historian who studies these garments, but you actually also get to see them in motion. You wear them. You see them worn. You see the, how they get worn, where they're weak, why they're constructed a certain way. Do you get to learn something specific by wearing the, um, the recreations that you make, do they tell you something when you put them on? They do. The stays, for instance, are a very comfortable garment. Tell us what stays are. The stays, that's what most people call them a corset today. Um, that's actually a different um, article of clothing in the 19th century. But the stays help us stand up straight. They give us the posture and deportment of the century. If you're going to step the minuet, they're going to help you with that balance and, you know, um, and, and your gracefulness. They're also going to help you understand why you courtesy or you give a sink when you're greeting someone. Or you're sitting and you've got your feet just ever so slightly apart so that you can lift yourself straight up out of the chair. Um, because if you put your feet together, as we would think 21st century is proper, you can't get out of the chair. Um, so it's, it's little things like that. Um, so being within the clothing, um, the 18th century called it being within your compass or staying within your, um, you know, your place. And being inside the clothes help you understand so much about the people. Um, we like to take a look at our hands and say that we have a trade within the hands. Um, you know. And one of my goals is to see that my hands and eyes can do the same work. Um, can they make the same garments? Can I fit someone as they should be for the 18th century? Um, if I read their newspapers, if I read their books, I look at their clothes, I remake their clothes, that's one way that I can get closer to understanding those people. You wear beautiful 18th century gowns every day. I wonder if there's a, a part or an article of the 18th century clothing that you're really glad to take off every day. Or conversely, is if you're tooling around town on the weekend, do you really miss part of your 18th century? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we get used to wearing long skirts. And um, so I must admit that in my uh, 21st century clothing, um, you know, knee-length skirts, little too short. Um, we also get used to, uh, um, you know, having our hair up in, in a cap. And it's kind of fun because you can walk right past people that you've talked 
to earlier in the day and they don't recognize you because you look so different without that uh, you know, fashionable cap on your hair. Um, so it's a way of being incognito in your own town. <laughs> You are um, very easily identifiable, though, in Colonial Williamsburg's historic area. Where can people come find you in your shop and learn more about your trade? Our shop is on Duke of Gloucester Street, right beside the Silversmith, and across the street from uh, Weatherburn's Tavern. And our front window has the best light in the entire building, so you'll find us sewing, working, cutting right downstairs in front of everyone that comes in to visit and uh, we just might give them pins to help us pin things or uh, you know here's a pair of scissors to help cut out this uh, piece of fabric with this um, so we invite them to come in and, and share this uh, you know, 18th century experience with us oh I hope they do Janae thank you so much for being here today you're welcome do you have a question or suggestion for the show leave a comment at podcast.history.org